0: Well, good morning. Good morning. It is always my joy to preach here at my own church. A joy to see your faces. Thank you, Eric and Terry, for leading us in those prayers. I'm also particularly glad that we're doing this series called "A Beautiful Design," uh, for no other reason than that in our current cultural moment, uh, there is great confusion about what is a human being, who are we, why do we exist. What is the meaning of life in these sort of difficult questions? And to uh, address that from God's word, we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. So you can go ahead and turn there in your Bible. And as you turn there, uh, I'm going to do something, uh, I think, pretty rare. I'm going to act out for you an entire play all by myself, okay? Now, I do need your help. You'll need to use your imagination a little bit. Uh, Go ahead and close your eyes. Because you'll need to imagine some things as I describe them. And the first bit of imagination is exactly this. Then you need to imagine that you're in a playhouse and it's completely pitch black. All of the lights are off on the stage and in the playhouse. In fact, you needed help to even find your seat. It is entirely pitch black. And as you sit there in the dark and you wonder, well, when when does the play begin? Little do you know, it's actually already begun and pu- sitting there in the dark is part of the experience and as you sit there you start to notice that a light is dimly starting to be lit on the stage it's dim but because it's so dark you can you can see that the light is there and it's and it's growing a little bit in intensity and as it does you notice that something is on the stage but can't quite see it there's something there you can't quite make out the form but then the light is getting brighter and brighter and as it does you also notice that there's a small sound creeping up on you as well and it's the sound of a baby crying and the baby's cry is getting louder and louder and the light is getting brighter and brighter and you can now make out what's on the stage what is it it is a pile of trash a large pile of garbage is sitting on the stage. Now the light is at full intensity. The baby is crying at full volume. And then there's a breath. <gasps> and the lights go out again. And the play's over. You can Open your eyes. You can go home. That's the extent of the play. And it's meant to invoke a little bit of laughter, but also a bit of dread. That was the play, Breath. By Samuel Beckett and the point of the play is simply this a little bit of crying at the beginning some light some sound some smell some laughter in between a final breath and then darkness again is an artistic expression of your life what are you you are a pile of trash Now, to be fair, you're a little more sophisticated than a pile of trash. But Becca's point is simply this. As human beings, we're, we're no different than a pile of trash. A sophisticated combination of the electrons and atoms and water, some sound, some smell, some fury, in between two darknesses. The trash will eventually decompose, and so will you. And that's his view of humanity. Now, lest you think that's just the stuff for avant-garde, off-Broadway plays, let me explain to you as well the ending of 2008 Blue Sky Studios' Horton Hears a Who. You know, you know Horton Hears a Who, right? It's a Dr. Seuss book. It's a book made for kids. And the movie was made for kids. You know how it goes. Horton, he's a big blue elephant, and he lives in, in the jungle, and there's a flower And on the flower is a speck of dust. And on the speck of dust is a civilization. And no one can see the civilization. But Horton, I I guess because he has the biggest ears in the jungle, or for whatever reason, he can hear someone speaking to him from the speck of dust. And he has a conversation with this person, and lo and behold, the person tells him that, yeah, there's a whole civilization down here on this speck of dust. And the other animals in the jungle think Horton is crazy, of course, and so they want to put an end to his insanity. And they're chasing him around, and he's protecting the flower with the speck, with the civilization on the speck, and all kinds of hilarity ensues. Eventually, Horton is able to save the flower and the speck and the civilization. And the person in the civilization says, Horton, what would we do without you? And Horton says, I'll always be around. And as he says that, the camera pans out on the on Horton and the flower, onto the jungle. Now you can see the jungle. Now you can see the whole world. And the camera continues to pan out until you can see the world set in outer space. And continues to pan out so you can see how vast the universe is and increasingly how small the earth is. And then the narrator says, what if we were just careening aimlessly through space on a speck of dust? as the camera continues to pan out, and you see, lo and behold, Earth is actually but a speck of dust, careening through space. And there is no big blue elephant protecting us. This is the vision of humanity that is put upon us through those uh, cultural media avenues. That we are small, that we are insignificant, that we are brief, and therefore the conclusion is we are ultimately meaningless. The Bible, however, is going to give us a different and all inspiring answer to the same kinds of questions. So if you've turned to Genesis 1, let's read just two verses, Genesis one 26-26. As we go through this passage today, I want to divide it up into three parts. Number one, the identity of humanity in creation. Identity in creation. Who are you? What are you? And then number two, meaning in creation. Meaning in creation. Why do I exist? What's the purpose of life? Why should I get out of bed in the morning? These kinds of questions. All are given to us Because we're created in the image of God. And then thirdly, identity and meaning in the new creation. So again, that's identity in creation, meaning in creation, and then identity and meaning in new creation. And my hope is that you will have a profound awe towards all people because all are made in the image of God. So let's start with that number one, identity in creation. What does that mean? What does it mean when it says here, let us create man in our image? And then in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. It means that God has made us to be like him and to represent his sovereignty through us. God has made us to be like him and to represent his sovereignty through us. And so therefore, this means that every person from the word go already has identity and meaning exactly as they were created. Everyone has already identity and meaning because they were created in the image of God. Again, I repeat, as I said before, there's great confusion today about what a human being is. Who am I? What am I? Why do I exist? These are questions haunting everybody, humming under the hood of our minds, as it were. Very few of us, however, have actually taken the time to lift up the hood and examine what's underneath. In other words, ask hard questions about the origins of humanity, the origins of my own life. What does that mean? uh, Tell me about who I am and what's the meaning of life. Rather, we simply absorb answers From the cultural milieu. And there are two basic narratives that our culture, through the trends of our culture in the past and current media avenues today. Two basic stories our culture is telling us. Number one, there is no God. There is no God. All that exists is the physical stuff of the world. And you are but an extension of that physical stuff. And the physical stuff, whether it's in stars or whether it's in the the elements of the earth, have come together in a complex way to create life. And life has haphazardly, through pure chance, evolved to create bipedal mammals. It didn't have to be this way. The top of the food chain could have been four-legged reptiles. Actually, for a time it was, wasn't it? Right? Evolution is simply pushing along haphazardly. And so the universe has quite unthinking, uncaring, unfeeling, goalless, directionlessly created us. There's no purpose. It could have been otherwise. But here we are. And so the main problem with the world is really ignorance and suffering. I mean, here we are now. The world has created us haphazardly, without a goal, without a purpose, without a direction. But here we are, and we don't want to suffer. We want to have enjoyable lives. And so the real problem with the world is ignorance and suffering. Therefore, if we can learn enough about the world, if we can learn enough about uh, science and, and medicines and so forth, then we can fix all of our problems, and there will be less suffering, and that is salvation. That is salvation. Humanity is haphazardly created. The problem is our ignorance and suffering. Therefore, education will be our savior. We can conquer the world through higher forms of knowledge. That's story number one. Story number two is the exact opposite. You're all gods. The first story started with there is no God. Story number two starts with you're all gods. There is a splinter of divinity inside of all of you. And all you need to is a little bit of experience in the world to bring it forth. How do you bring it forth? Be true to yourself. Ever heard that one before? Don't let any culture or history or parents or schooling sort of constrict you into some kind of tradition. Rather, break free of all traditions and discover yourself, create your own identity, create your own meaning. And you will bring forth that splinter of divinity and light the fuse of God inside of you. Dear beloved, I think this is the cruelest thing we can say to children that you are on your own to figure out on your own and through your own devices and whatever media channels might be coming into you, who you are and what you are and what the meaning of your life is. And so I praise God for the truth of the scriptures, that God has told us there is a God, there's no apologetic for him, he is the I am who I am. He is simply there. And he creates. He creates us in his image. Not accidentally, not as an afterthought, but as the crown of his creative purposes. After which he says in verse 31, God saw everything he had made and behold it was very good. God's assessment on humanity is that we are very good, intentionally made like him. Now we could think for a long time of what does it mean to bear the attributes of God, to be like him, to not be merely an extension of the animal kingdom. Capacity for love is number one. I look at lions and ostriches and butterflies, they don't have capacity for love. They don't think about community. They act on instinct, purely. Something we call a judicial sentiment. You know, you know, you don't have to be taught. You already know that it is wrong to kill, it is wrong to steal, and these sort of things. Right? Animals don't live by this sort of code of what we call ethics. Rationality, to think on higher planes of complex thought, to understand, I hope you understand, a sermon like this. Creativity, we'll come back to that. And speech, These are all attributes that God has, and he passes them on to us. So you have an identity. We have an identity. And that is being made in the image of a God who loves, who speaks, who creates, who knows right and wrong. And these things are baked into our very existence ourselves. Yet... Notice in these verses the primary attribute of humanity. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now right there, Moses could go for the love, the rationality, the community, right? All those sort of things. But look what he says. He says, male and female, he created them. God has intentionally created his image bearers as male and female. Maleness and femaleness, therefore, are God's ideas. Not the situation of a haphazardly evolved humanity that needs to be fixed or needs to be transcended. Male and femaleness are part and parcel of the image of God. Now, as we see that God, the first thing God says about humanity is male and female, does it not reflect something of the plurality within God? There is one God. He creates one humanity that bears his image, yet he creates distinctions within his image bearers, maleness and femaleness. Now, this will not be bared out until the rest of the scriptures, that it turns out there is a plurality in God, a plurality of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, in community with each other, three persons, one God. Yet here we already see a hint of that. Because when he makes the one image-bearer, that is humanity, all equally bearing the image of God, he nonetheless makes a distinction between men and women, and so what that means is that there's a plurality within God that he desires to reflect in his image bearers. And just as Father, Son, and Spirit are equally God, men and women are equally bearing the image of God, yet distinctly so. I would argue, therefore, that the existence of maleness and femaleness is a mark of the Trinitarian God as he creates in his image. And the implications for this, for gender and sex, are enormous. That when God set to make his image, to create his image, to have humanity bear his image, it necessitated maleness and femaleness. There must be maleness and femaleness in Humanity, and distinctly so, in order to reflect the plurality within the one God. I mean, think for a moment. If God had made only men, then humanity would be less the image of God. If God had made only women, then humanity as a whole would bear less the image of God. But in order to reflect the plurality within the one God, within the one image of God, there are the distinction of genders. Think about the implications also for marriage. Marriage necessitates, therefore, the unity of a man and a woman. The plurality coming together in a unity. Again, reflecting the image of God. And so we hold these positions on gender, sex, and marriage, not because they are conservative, but because they are biblical. But because they are biblical. We are people who desire to follow King Jesus. And Jesus rules his church through the scriptures. So in our desire to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ, we insist that maleness and femaleness are the intentionally very good creations of God, not to be transcended or fixed And when God speaks of his image, he speaks of maleness and femaleness. So to blur the lines or to break them all together between men and women is not just an affront to humanity and nature, but to God himself. Yet to the contrary, to recognize and to revel in and to rejoice in the distinctiveness between men and women within the image of God is to his glory and to our benefit. This bears also on issues of race. This clearly teaches that all people are made in God's image, insofar that all people are descended from Adam and Eve. And so again, within the diversity of what we see in the world, there is an equality of the image of God, yet an intentional diversity on God's part. And we have this teaching in scriptures and it's not new or trendy that all human beings are intentional creations of God and that said identity and meaning are already in the image of God. Which means it, God intends some people to be black. God intends some people to be white. God intends some to be Asian, some to be American, some Polish, some Peruvian, some Navajo, some Nicaraguan. None are wrong. All are right because God has so decreed that his humanity, bearing his image, would reflect this kind of diversity. Again, Genesis 1.31 says, it is all very good. So if all are equal in God's eyes, all should be equal in our eyes. And the church should be the place where that commitment shines the brightest. Because these convictions are not new or trendy, but ancient and severe, sincere. They are biblical. And in our desire to be faithful disciples of Jesus, we want to faithfully follow his word and be on the front lines of shining forth the commitments of equality and justice for all. So again, the common concern for racial equality is ours, not the world's, because it's not popular on social media, God save us, but because it is biblical and because we desire to be faithful disciples of Jesus who rules his church through the Bible. To ignore the suffering and the well-being of anyone is not just callous towards the brotherhood of man, but an affront to the very image of God. But to love all is to glorify God. So the next time you're in a discussion, with somebody about racial equality in America, and it won't be long, you should ask them, why does this topic matter to you? This time you're talking to your neighbor, your colleague, your cousin, say, so why is this important to you? Why do you think it's important to other people? They will be surprised that you ask. Because nine times out of ten, the response will be, well, it's just, it's just like common sense, right, that everybody should be treated equally. Well, if it's such common sense, why has it been so uncommon historically? You understand? In other words, help him look him or her look under the hood of his assumptions and understand why is this such an issue right now? Why do you care so passionately and deeply about it? And maybe by God's grace, you'll be able to interject, well, let me tell you why I care so deeply about it. Let me tell you why I have a foundation for racial justice and equality. And it is because the one God made all of us in his image. And so to be a faithful disciple of the Son of God, I want to recognize that in all people. And then that can move the conversation away from casual cultural assumptions to an actual particular reason grounded in the scriptures And so, dearly beloved, the good news right off the bat is that every human being is already created with a particular identity in the image of God. And that there's no need to create our own through our choices, through our decisions, through our rebellion, through identifying with subcultural sets of the society, and these sort of things. But we are all made in the image of God. Well, what is the meaning then? What is our me what, what is our purpose for existing? Notice it says in verse 26, "Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth." God had just made all those things. God had just made the fish of the sea and the livestock and the birds and the, even the little, bird, the little bugs on the ground, the creeping things, and put them in their proper location, in the sky, in the water, and on the ground. And then he turns to humanity and says, you take over. And so the primary activity of humanity in the world, the meaning for bearing the image of God, is that we would create and that we would steward. God created and cared for his creation. Now he hands it to his image bearers to create and care for creation. No other animal is able to create and steward the way we are. Again, because we are far more than an extension of the animal kingdom. A few years ago, there was, a, uh, there was an IMAX um, on whales uh, down at wherever that place is next to Victory Field, where they have the IMAX show, right? And I was amazed. I was amazed at the way they, what they eat and how they catch it. These whales are huge, the biggest animals on the earth. And you know what they eat? They eat little schools of little fish and krill. Krill are are smaller than shrimp. (laughs) So if you're that big and you eat food that small, you have to eat a lot, right? So here's how they catch their food. They spread out over hundreds of miles, and then they're able to communicate with each other when one of them finds a school of fish or a swarm of krill. They communicate with each other through clicks and sounds underwater, and then they come together. And they swim in a circle under the fish and krill, blowing out air bubbles, creating walls, a tunnel of bubbles going up that traps the krill and the fish inside, and they can't get out. And then they go underneath, open up their mouths, come up through the tunnel, and eat a huge mouthful. And then they do it again until they all get their fill, or they, they empty the place out of food. And then they spread out over hundreds of miles and do it again. And when I saw that, I was just amazed at how they communicate, gather, have a mechanism for catching food, and do that together. But that is nothing compared to pen and paper. You understand? The ability to cultivate from the earth paper and create ink and put your thoughts down on them and give them to successive generations in order to pass on culture, ideas, and technology one generation after another. It's nothing compared to fire or opera or lights or controlling the temperature in a room. You understand? Only... Creatures made in God's image can create in such a way. Now you may say to yourself, but I'm not very creative. I'm not very creative. You know, songs and architecture and opera, whatever else, you know, that's some people do that, but not me. That's not true. You are creative. You are creative. Every time you cook dinner, you are being creative in the image of God. I mean, not even dinner. I mean, think about a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Just, just think about something so simple as that. What are you doing here? You're taking peanut butter that was in a bean and was harvested from some other place by someone else and transported across some distance. You bartered for it at the, at the grocery store using this cultural artifact that only human beings have called money. Right? And it's combined with oils and sugars and so forth. And you use this thing called a knife. What a beautiful piece of technology that no other animal creates or uses. And you spread it over bread, which used to be in a grain in a field somewhere else at another time of the year. It's been brought together to create bread. And then you take fruit, raspberries, strawberries, whatever, mashed up together and again combined with sugars and other uh, additives and smear it over top of the peanut butter and you put it together. Only creatures made in God's image cultivate so many parts of the earth and bring them together for something as simple as a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. How much more the more complex things you do. Everybody is creative on some level because everybody is born in the image of God we create also in our jobs everyone's job in one capacity or another is basically a function of helping society improve providing a service providing a good for society do you fix cars somebody needed their car fixed do you sell insurance people need insurance so you're providing them a service do you teach classes Somebody needs to be educated. Jobs in the world are a way of contributing to the society and the betterment of the entire human culture. You are creative at your jobs. We're even creative in our recreations and our hobbies. For the last, I don't know, like eight years or so, I've participated in something called the Night Ride downtown. And if you've ever done the Night Ride, got one Night Rider back there. You're lamenting like I I am that it's been canceled the last two years, right? Well, last year, my sons and I wanted to do a night ride, and we would not be refused. So we lit up our bikes just like everybody else does and charted a course through the neighborhood and so forth, and off we went to ride our bikes under the stars. There is no other creature who brings together metal and rubber and lights and batteries, and roads, just to enjoy it, just to frolic in creation. So in your homes, and in your jobs, and in your hobbies, all these things give glory to God who made us in his image to exercise our creativity, an emblem of the greater creativity of our good and sovereign God. Only image bearers do that. Steward the earth. We also steward our families. We steward our finances. We steward our natural giftings in the image of God. But there's a catch. There's always a catch. And the catch is our sinfulness. On the next two pages of Genesis, our first parents rebel against our good Creator. God also gives us, as I mentioned, a judicial sentiment. He gives us ethics, and we are to live by them. While Adam and Eve and every single one of their posterity, that's you and me, have rebelled against the good, sovereign rule of God. By going our own way, we call that sin. We call it breaking God's law. And so therefore, we've used our creativity not just for the good of society, but we also have a great creative capacity for evil as well. I mentioned being creative in our homes. Well, there's also something called domestic violence. I mentioned being creative in our jobs. However, we can also create in our jobs evil things, evil websites, drugs, weapons, using our jobs as opportunities to take advantage of other people. I mentioned being creative in our recreation. Well, we can also use our recreation as a way to sanitize and cover over our sins. And we can steward things unto ourselves. We love to hoard. We love to hoard. When you get a raise at work, a lot of people's first thought is, build bigger barns and store up for myself because I'm afraid of the future. And this will give me a little more security. It should be, what more can I do to advance the kingdom of God? That's not what we think. We think about ourselves in the first instinct. Sin is so laced into our hearts that we use even these good attributes of made in the good image of God for evil and selfishness. And so what that means is, wherein we were given dominion over the creation, we have lost that dominion. We have lost control. Case in point, COVID-19. We can't control it. We should be able to control it, but we can't. And the ultimate point of control, the point of control that every single one of us in this room would control if we could, is our own death. If you could, you would live forever. You would secure your health to live. People want to live. They're afraid of dying. Yet, we will all die. Because that is the consequence for that moral rebellion and that sin against God. God has good plans to create us in his image, to give us sovereignty and dominion through our creativity, male and female, throughout the earth, and we have squandered all these things. Yet, God will not be denied his purposes. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We will read of God's reclamation efforts to accomplish his purposes in creation through humanity once again. And in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, Paul is talking, of course, about Jesus. When he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. That means the preeminent over all creation. For by him all things were created, which means he himself was not created, because by him everything else was created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Particularly there in verse 18, Paul says Jesus is the head of the body of the church, the beginning, the first born from the dead. God's solution to our rebellion and consequent death is to send the new man, the new Adam, the man Jesus Christ, who when he dies on the cross, he does not die for his own sinfulness because he had none. He died for the sinfulness of his people to atone for our sins, to grant us forgiveness, and then to raise him from the dead. And as God raises Jesus from the dead, he has unleashed on this world a new kind of power, resurrection power, resurrection life through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit to empower fallen, image-bearing sinners like us to live anew in a new way that is not rebelling against God, that is not so hell-bent, to rebel and sin against God, but refreshed and renewed to follow King Jesus in a new humanity. In fact, Peter calls us a new race. According to Peter, there are two races, in Adam and in Jesus. And those in Jesus, for all their otherwise racial distinctions, are, have a higher unity in Christ, being raised with him and given the gift of the Holy Spirit to live in a new way through Jesus' power as a new humanity. And so the church is the vanguard of the new creation, the new humanity that understands its identity and meaning in creation and understands its new identity and meaning in recreation in Jesus Christ. So we are united to Jesus, the new man, and raised with him. And this, therefore, is the story that we have to tell in our homes and in our friendships and in our church that we are made in the good image of God and we have an identity and a purpose just by being human. But we are also fallen, sinful creatures and accountable, therefore, to the ultimate judge, that is God, and under his condemnation and wrath. But Jesus, by his perfect life and death and resurrection, have forgiven us restored us to God, and created out of us a new humanity with a new unity unlike anything else that this world can offer. Now, if you're not a believer here today, I wonder what you think about this. I wonder what you think about this. And I would invite you to think deeply about what you think humanity is and what is the meaning of life and where else answers can be given other than through the God-man god man Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection and the new humanity he creates through his resurrection. So let me leave us with these words from C.S. Lewis. Can I do that? I gave you Samuel Beckett and Dr. Seuss earlier. This is a better way to go out. Though I do like Dr. Seuss. I just don't like that ending to that movie. C.S. Lewis said in The Weight of Glory, he said this, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. Now just think about that for a second. Culture and politics and medicines, these are mortal. They're like a gnat. For all the wrangling, And all the heartache and consternation we put into politics. C.S. Lewis says, like a gnat. But it is immortal people with whom we joke. With whom we work. Who we marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Meaning eternity in hell or heaven. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. No, we must play. But our merriment must be of the kind that, that is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And so it turns out that we are not between two darknesses. We are between two lights. In the beginning, God with intentionality and meaning and purpose, said, let there be light. And in the end, there will be a light, the book of Revelation tells us, of a kind and species that doesn't even need the sun. We are between two lights, and in between, Jesus says, the way you understand these things about humanity, creation, and redemption is what will make you the light of the world. Please pray with me. Father, as Eric mentioned, we are convicted by your word in all the ways that we have indeed thought flippantly and with superiority or presumption about our fellow image bearers and the way we have created distinctions and unbiblical categories and the way we've been influenced by the world that rejects your son And we pray now that you would take your scripture, write it on our hearts, and indeed reform us according to the image of your Son, whom you raised from the dead and made him our head. In Jesus' name, amen.